Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough, coming to you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a cool program for you all today. I have no doubt you will learn, grow, and be inspired by today's show. Before we get into our main event, I want to thank you for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and subscribe. Your likes and follows help ensure you won't miss any of our new shows, and it makes the algorithm gods happy, which helps us. So thanks for that. Also, be sure to visit our website, notrealart.com. Sign up for our newsletter to keep your finger on the pulse of everything we're doing here at Not Real Art for artists and art lovers. A lot of great stuff there. On the website, you'll see you'll get uh, free educational videos. You can sign up for our artist grant for the chance to receive $2,000. You can buy affordable original contemporary art through our partnership with Sugar Press. And you can become a supporter through Patreon if you want. So be sure to check out our website today for all the good, healthy stuff we got for you. Okay, my creative brothers and sisters, it is tax season. And whether you like it or not, the government is coming for your money or coming for their money. (laughs) And so if you aren't ready, you're going to feel the pain. And I know, I know you don't want to deal with numbers and money and business stuff. I get it. But nobody likes doing taxes. You're not special. You're not unique. Nobody. I don't care if you're a doctor, a lawyer, entrepreneur, or an artist. Nobody enjoys dealing with taxes. And so I have good news for you. Because if you are struggling with taxes, if you're looking for help, if you're looking for expertise, today's guest is the perfect guest for you. Hannah Cole, ladies and gentlemen, Hannah Cole, the one and only from Sunlight Tax, sunlighttax.com is our guest today. And let me tell you, Hannah is a rock star and she's one of these rare human beings that actually has both sides of the brain working. (laughs) And she actually started off as an artist and is an artist. She has her MFA, in fact, but she also has her accounting degree. Because she had some really bad things happen to her along the way as a working artist in terms of getting her business set up and getting her taxes uh, handled. And she realized 
there was an opportunity to actually become, to educate herself and become an expert. So she went back to get her accounting degree, went back to school to get her accounting degree. And now she has her business, Sunlight Tax, and she helps artists just like you deal with taxes, deal with accounting, deal with these issues. And not just, she just, just doesn't give you a fish. She actually teaches you how to fish too. She has a whole educational component to what she does. She has free resources on her website. She has a master class. She has a online educational resources for you. So she's trying to empower you as well and educate you as well so that you can do for yourself and you can be self-reliant and you can handle these things. So you don't have to pay her your hard-earned money to do the work. You can pay her. She'll take your money. <laughs> she's awesome. But she also wants you to be able to fend for yourself. And so she's a you know, big proponent of education and thinks of herself as, as an educator as well and empowering artists around their business life and their financial life and their tax life. And so since tax season is upon us, I just thought it'd be perfect timing to have the one and only Hannah Cole with us today from Sunlight Tax, sunlighttax.com. Check them out. And without further ado, let's get into this fantastic conversation with the one and only Hannah Cole. Well, I think in terms of trying to make a difference for artists, we have to do a better job of making that art world, that art, those artists accessible. And this idea of being precious or being a bit elitist or even self-righteous <laughs> about, about art or, or the value of art or the importance of art, it can be off-putting for so many people. And I feel like, you know, the mass market, if there, you know, there's no mass market for art because we've never even tried to nurture a mass market for art, really. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Well, I was just saying before we were recording, I was just saying like everybody's got a favorite pop song and everybody's got a favorite movie. And I think that all artists would do better if everybody had a favorite piece of art and felt like they were allowed to. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. There was a statistic, I guess, a hundred years, 200 years ago, whatever. It was quite common for a household to have 30 to 40 pieces of art. Wow. And I was certainly within a certain economic, you know, uh, strata, I guess. But now people don't buy art or they don't know how to buy art. It seems mm -hmm. a lot of times it's like, well, I can't afford art because they the perception of art is that it's so expensive mm -hmm. because, of course, the big auctions get all the headlines. But you and I both know that in terms of supply, there's way more art out there priced between 100 bucks and 5000 bucks than 5000 yeah. bucks and above. And there are so many people that can afford that. Yeah, totally. And I, I think the real problem is that people feel like they need somebody else's permission to like it or to, they need somebody else to tell them it's good. Like, I don't need anybody to tell me what music is good. Do I feel something or do I not? Do I right. like it? Does it make me want to groove? I'm dating myself with my language. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm 51. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure I got you be by a long shot. <laughs> but does the art make you feel something? Yes. You know, there's these layers of curators and writers and honestly, a great art writer, that's a whole art in and of itself. Like I'm not trying to knock all art writing or curation. There's a definite place for it. Of course. But there's also a bit of a quality of gatekeeperness that does not serve the general popular love of art, I think. And I also think in the art world, both artists and curators and writers, I think they often confuse 
accessibility with it being not good. If it's accessible, somehow it can't be good. So it has to be inaccessible to be good. I just couldn't disagree with that more. The phrase, part of what you're getting at too, it's like, you know, did we forget the phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder? If we believe that phrase to be true, I do. This gets back to your favorite song, right? It's like, you know what your favorite song is. You know what you like and you want to dance to. People don't trust their own taste. You know, if they see a painting and they think it's beautiful, then it's beautiful. Buy it, take it home, hang Mm -hmm. it on your wall. But we've created this persona that uh, somehow people can't trust their own judgment and they've got to listen to the so-called experts. It's not, that's totally. not good for artists and art sales. No, it's not good for the art world either. I mean, even just, this is getting a little beyond probably what you might want me to talk about, but I think just the fact that a lot of the collectors now are having their own personal shopper essentially buy their art for them right? is kind of middle of the roading the whole art world. Like people's weird, individual, unique tastes used to make certain artists rise up to the top who were random and strange. And the random strangeness is part of what's great about art and great about the art world. Just buying what everybody else is buying is the absolute antithesis of where I would like the art world to Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, two pieces of art that I have that mm-hmm. I get the most compliments on. One piece, again, trusting my own taste, trusting what I like. Mm-hmm. I found it a flea market for five bucks and I put it in ah, a new frame. I love it. Right. And then the other p- bit of art was sort of falls in this category of sort of cultural ephemera. Mm-hmm. And uh, I happened to acquire this piece. I won't go into how I acquired this piece, but I, I did. And I put a frame on it and people are just like, wow, that's the coolest thing. And, and, and anybody could have done this. Anybody could have had this. You know, you don't, mm-hmm. you can find art down the street. You don't have to go into that white cube. Yeah. You're speaking to a thing that I think a lot of artists discount about themselves. Like part of being an artist is cultivating that sense of finding stuff. Yes. When you say anybody could could have found this, anybody could have done this, like I feel that way about my own work too, but also that's not true. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> uh, yeah. that's also your special eye. You're, you you earn the yeah, you 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 earn the eyes. Yeah, yeah. You've got to yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hannah Cole, you are classing up the joint. I am so glad <laughs> that you are here. This is so cool. You know, the world is so small because it turns out we actually have never met, but we actually have common friends in common. So Obviously, we met through our mutual friend, Morgan Lawrence. Mm-hmm. I guess you also know uh, my friend, Louise Glickman. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Asheville. <laughs> Asheville. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. The world is very small. And Asheville is particularly small. <laughs> I love Asheville. I've uh, only been there once. I was there in June of last year. Yeah, was that right? June of last year. I'm hoping to come back soon. What a great place. And you're you're based in Asheville, yeah? I am, yes. I lived in New York City for many years. I grew up in Boston, lived in New York City for many, many years. Once I had tiny children, New York City lost some of the glow. (laughs) It was a little grinding and expensive. And we were just looking around for like a place with a that was a little easier to exist with children. I had never even set foot in Asheville, but I have an art history degree and I had studied Black Mountain College and I was like I heard that there's this place somewhere in the mountains 
in far west North Carolina that, you know, like Merce Cunningham and Jacob Lawrence and Annie and Joseph Albers lived. Like, what's that place? Let's go there. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that's Asheville. That's very cool. Yeah, we dropped. Well, I met. So let's see. So let's go back. Mary Farmer, mm-hmm. who is an encaustic painter there in Asheville. Mm-hmm. Happens to be married to a dear friend of mine, and I had her on the podcast a couple of years ago to talk about her work. Her podcast, I guess, uh, caught the attention of some other wonderful people there in Asheville, and uh, Louise Glickman was one of those wonderful people. So we started talking, and she has an organization called Sand Hill Artist Collective, and so we started collaborating on a project to develop and produce a podcast for. Asheville. It's called Artsville. And cool. Yeah. Yeah. So we just dropped it. Artsville, the podcast. We dropped six episodes. Um, and so I invite you to check it out sometime. Artsvilleusa.com. And uh, yeah, so, you know, so the whole thing again is about just helping celebrate American contemporary arts and crafts and exploring how Asheville became Artsville. And so anyway, so I'm going to be coming back there a lot. We have a little retail space. Have you been to Marquee yet? Yes, actually. Okay, so we have a space in Marquee. Cool. A booth there. It's the Artsville booth. But Louise and her husband, Daryl, sort of curate that space. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, cool. Maybe I'll take a spin there this weekend. (laughs) Right on. Well, you have the best story, Hannah Cole. You do God's work. (laughs) Let's just put it that way because, you know, it's funny (laughs) – People have asked me over the years, they say, oh, so you work with artists and you help artists and you, so you're like an artist manager. And I say, oh, hell no, because artists can't be managed. (laughs) Don't call me an artist manager. I love artists. I am an artist. I help artists. I do, you know, I've worked with artists my whole life, but I would never imagine trying to manage them. You go one step beyond and say, not only am I going to help you in your career, you're going to do God's work by helping them sort their finances and their taxes specifically. I mean, first of all, mm-hmm. for you to be an artist, number one, and then to get into accounting and tax prep and, and all the, the financial aspects, like, A, you you must be a, I think it's safe to say, you, you must be a genius because you have both <laughs> sides of the brain, both sides of the brain. Most artists just have the right side. But you have this wonderful balance to be able to not just have your own practice and your own career as an artist, but then you have this sort of superhero, you're like a double agent, you know, artist by day, (laughs) accountant by night or something. I don't even know. But the fact that you've taken this on to help artists uh, alleviate the pain because it's Mm -hmm. painful. And I've told artists over the years, I say, look, guys, nobody likes doing their taxes. Nobody. Like I, I haven't met, I don't care if you're a lawyer or a doctor whatever. Mm -hmm. Nobody likes doing taxes. It's just one of those necessary evils. You're not alone. And so here you are fighting the good fight on behalf of artists, helping them prepare their taxes and getting their financial lives in order through your organization, Sunlight. Let's start at the beginning. How the hell did you, what was your journey? How did you land here? Sure. It was a hell of a ride and a, a bit of a long voyage. I started out as a kind of punk rock (laughs) (laughs) anti-capitalist you couldn't never say never you couldn't have gotten me close to an econ class i just had no interest in business whatsoever because to me not from any explicit message but from definite strong implicit messages culturally business was for people who 
had crew cuts and wore khakis and generally were white and male, probably even athletic. You know what I mean? Like just a certain kind of person. That's who business is for. And it also seemed a little slimy to me. I was only ever interested in authenticity. And of course, that's how I became an artist, because it's the part of the world I can exist in in that form. And it's cool. And everyone around me is that way. So many hard knocks. And I basically started learning about taxes on my own as a working artist, because I just organically needed it. Like when I got out of my MFA program, I was like, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on your show, by the way. Oh, fuck um, yeah, you're allowed to share. It's just okay. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I was just uh, like, hell yeah. Oh, That's one of the best parts. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was my feeling when I got out of grad school was, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that was year one and it only got worse. So just like, oh, wait, I'm supposed to pay my taxes quarterly? Wait, what's that? Wait a minute. What even am I taxed on? I have, don't I get to take expenses out? Wait a minute. I have teaching income and commissions and gallery sales and grants. How does this all fit together? How, how am I supposed to figure this out? Right. So from just a total, I literally checked a book out of the library about taxes and I read it. So that was my start. And then I had several crystallizing moments. One was actually deciding to pay what to me was a lot of money to get my dad's accountant to do my taxes my first year out of grad school. And that was such a miserable experience. I was so angry when I was done with it. I had, like I said, I checked this book out of the library. I looked up some tax rules because I was really trying to do it right. I had two residencies out West that year and I drove. And so I knew because of this book I read, I was supposed to keep a mileage log. So I like literally in the dashboard of my truck had a little like notebook and I was like noting my mileage all the way to Wyoming, all the way to New Mexico. And my dad's accountant just like didn't even look at it. It was a $4,000 deduction and he just missed it. The whole time, he very much fit into this category of person who I think of as a business person or thought of as a business person. Shamed me because I didn't know business terminology. Made me feel totally intimidated. I just felt like not only am I paying him a lot of money, but he isn't letting me ask any of the questions that I want that I thought I was going to get answers to by paying this money. And then he missed this $4,000 deduction. So I ended up throwing that tax return in the trash and doing it myself anyway. And I paid a lot of money in order to do that. So that was the misery part. And then many moons later, you know, like I had some hard economic times having a baby in New York City and being like, oh, shit, childcare. What am I going to do for studio time now that I have to pay like 20 bucks an hour to just get into my studio? That was hard. And then I got this job at a design agency and my whole... It was just a part-time job and it allowed me to get just enough childcare so I could be in the studio a little bit. And I actually loved this job and I this design agency that I was at, it was a love fest with the designers. I just wanted to know everything they were doing. I wanted to know like design is a different world from visual art related, obviously, but they had all these skills and it's more tech. And I was like, oh my God, how do you do this? Show me this, show me this. How do you do this? How do you come up with these ideas? And so project managing this creative team, I was told going in, you're going to be miserable managing the creatives, always said in a derogatory tone. And I was like, oh, no, that's the best part. We love each other. It's so easy to tell them about the timeline and the budget because they listen to me because we're listening to each other, you know. So I had this sort of 
Thunderstrike when I was at that job, like, oh, I think I might have some skill in like communicating to my people, which is creative people, business stuff. Because at that job, I also started learning the business side and realizing that I actually kind of liked it more than I thought I did. Because I had been out in the world having hard experiences enough to be like, oh, you know what? Bookkeeping actually is super important. <laughs> like these things I was allergic to in my young 20s, I was suddenly like, oh, I know why this is important now. And then the ultimate why this is important moment was actually at that job. My boss, and I say this with love because he was the best boss I ever had. And I, I think he ran a great team and it was a fabulous place to work, but he didn't know his numbers. He didn't know what his profit was. I helped him get set up on bookkeeping. At the time, I didn't know anything about bookkeeping or accounting, but I convinced him to hire a bookkeeper and like get in. And I actually even went back to school during this job and took an accounting course because I knew we needed it. I could read that on the wall, right? Once he got his book set up, what he realized instantaneously was that he was bleeding money, that he in fact wasn't profitable at all. And within a day, he called every single one of us into the office and we all got laid off. So that was the Brutal. real, like, yeah, yeah. that was the real shovel to the face moment of like, guess what? If you don't know what your profit is, really bad things can happen. Mm. So, you know, I think plenty of artists have had experiences where they realize that money is in fact important and a thing they need to manage, but I have felt it in the most painful way. So at that moment, when I got laid off, I mean, I was out of luck, right? I had, I would like had a baby. I had a toddler at home and a baby on the way. <laughs> I was like, what the <laughs> fuck am I going to do? So I just decided to jump in with both feet. I was like, you know what? I know the business that should exist. And so I just decided to go back to school for accounting. And I literally, I did that thing that artists do. I had the vision. I was like, you know, this is a business that needs to exist. I think I'm capable of making it. And so I literally just went to school until I made this business and it's sunlight tax and now it exists. Amazing. Again, it's God's work because it's like a miracle. The fact that you had your heart broken, got burned a few times. And, and yet you, you said, you know what, with these lemons, I'm going to make lemonade. And you know now you have and or sunlight, <laughs> as it uh. were. And and now you're helping artists get their financial houses in order. How many years now? When did you open officially Sunlight? And how many years have you been doing your thing? Sure, I opened the doors officially in 2016. Yeah, so what was that? A couple of years now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. A few years. Yeah. And, it, and it's years. cool because based on what I was sort of prior to you know us sitting down today, I was sort of looking over things a bit, and it seems like. You have a kind of a workflow, if you will, sort of designed, and you want people to just kind of jump through a couple of hoops before you even consider them as a client. And, and what I mean by that is you want them to take your class. You want them to get a base level of knowledge, mm -hmm. right, you know, before you sit down with them. And that's so great because you're offering this education as the, as the cost of entry because we all have to educate. We all have to have a baseline. Yeah. Oh, I have, yeah, so many... I don't think this business would be as, I'm going to say it's a great business. I don't think it would be as great if I had formed it at any earlier point in life because it's informed by all the terrible things that have happened to me. <laughs> I have a sort of internal motto in this business, which is we're not your mother, which is everything we do is with love and empathy towards artists. I mean, it's my people, but it's also, I'm going to come to this professionally and so are you. 
So we're not cleaning up messes. Do you want me to charge you $300 an hour to clean up this mess? Or do you think maybe it would be worth your time to come back to me with this more organized? <laughs> your choice. Yeah. Actually, being a parent is very helpful here. If you've ever parented, then <laughs> yes. you know that that's kind of how you do things. But yes. I, anyway, I do. It's like, you have a choice. This is your choice. You can pay me $300 an hour to do this. Or you could decide that it's maybe worth your time to like, look at these things again and only give me the parts that only I can do and not the parts that you definitely could do. Right. So just a little bit of, Hey, let's remember your professionals too. I love that approach. I'm not going to let you fall into that artist stereotype because I yeah. know you're better than that. hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I so appreciate that so much because I've, I've sort of been harsh over the years and talking to my artist friends and, and I'm like, do you call yourself a professional artist or not? Yeah, I'm a professional artist. Well, then act like it. If you're a professional, yes, sure. Having your chops in terms of making art is critical, fundamental. Mm -hmm. You you can't be an artist without that. I don't think you can be a professional artist if you don't know your numbers, if you're not filing your taxes. I mean, you can't call yourself, in my view, I'm pretty conservative, I guess, in this regard. It's like, don't call yourself a professional if your books aren't in order. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, you mentioned the agency experience you had, and and that's the world I actually come through and come from. I got my start as a graphic designer in Chicago. Oh, cool. Working, you know, at design firms, ad agencies, marketing firms. And back in those days, the late 80s, early 90s, there was a real wall, right, between commercial art and fine art. Mm, mm-hmm. What's been interesting to watch over the last 30 years is that wall has just disappeared. And it's now sometimes very hard to see where fine art and commercial art start and stop or begin and end. But yet I've suggested that I think there's a lot that artists, fine artists, visual artists can learn from commercial artists because commercial artists, at least the best ones, have been very good over the years at developing a rigor to managing Mm -hmm. their time, managing their costs making sure they're tracking these things, you know, as a way of helping to inform billing and pricing and all of these things. And they had to, because of course their clients, the Procter and Gamble's and the, you know, Walmart's and the apples of the world absolutely require that you account for Mm -hmm. your billing. (laughs) It's like, Oh, you say you're charging this bill for $50,000. Okay. Why am I paying you $50,000? Totally. Oh my gosh. I learned so much from working in a design agency. For one thing, it highlighted all these things that didn't have names to me in the art world. So like, for example, working at a design agency, it's straightforwardly a business, first of all, right? Like a lot of artists are technically under the tax code. Any artist is actually running a business. Like I know that the artist might not know that it's not, you know, artists aren't generally going into it with that attitude, even though that is how they're treated in the tax code. But Design is straightforwardly a business. There's a client, there's a deliverable, there's a timeline, there's a budget. But the other thing, the thing that, and again, I don't think my sort of punk rock anti-capitalist self would have appreciated this, but it took being in that world for a long time of the handshake and the wink and the no contract world of the art, the fine arts to be like, oh, you know what? A contract protects me. Mm. (laughs) Like, oh, you know what? Like agreeing to our terms right up front is wonderful. It's so nice to have clarity because all the sort of misunderstandings and times where I felt kind of sour in the art world are 
because we didn't understand each other up front. Yes. And anyone who was deliberately, usually that is not deliberate, but anybody who's deliberately trying to keep things obscure is not really someone you should be working with. That's not someone working on the up and up, right? If somebody right. doesn't want to be clear, you're not going to get a good deal. <laughs> so, that's- 100%. And you, you know, you've, you've hit on a couple of really important things. One is this belief or this notion that artists aren't good at business or artists aren't good at numbers. I mean, mm-hmm. the reality is largely to the extent that they're not good at business or numbers. It's not that they can't. It's because they haven't. You know, it's because they haven't educated themselves. Right. And Mm -hmm. artists are some of the smartest people I know. (laughs) Absolutely. So part of the reason why artists get this rep and artists feel this way, I would argue, is because, of course, art schools do a horrible job of teaching anything business related. Zero. Totally. Totally true. Yeah. So garbage in, garbage out. At the end of the day, if artists can start accepting responsibility, right, for their own continuing education, (laughs) starting to learn, starting to read. They can become uh, savvy around these things and empowered. I mean, it's so common. It's so it's so empowering to feel like I know this stuff, right? At least I have a handle yeah. on it, you know. And I yeah. I don't feel like I'm being. You suddenly you can start trusting again and not feeling like people are trying to take you for all your worth or whatever. So there's this empowerment thing, you know, that I feel like needs to happen. And the work you do is so critical to this because you are educating and informing and elevating and expanding and empowering these Mm -hmm. artists uh, around their finance, their financial lives. And then the second part of that, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned something about contracts, the sweat that I've seen come down the brows of of artists as they've sat to read a contract. The joke uh, over the years has been, you know what, if the contract is more than two pages long, they're not going to sign it. You know, if we can just keep the contract one page, that would be ideal. Mm-hmm. Because again, reading contracts is one of those things that artists start to bog down on. It's like they become intimidated, you know, and I don't know how much you've run into yeah. that. But I was remembering uh, a few years ago, an artist who I love, and I won't mention his name, <laughs> because I love him <laughs> and out of respect. He's an incredibly talented guy. And a friend of mine who's a vice president at Warner Brothers, right, loved his art. And said, Mm -hmm. I would love to meet with them. So long story short was we started meeting with Warner Brothers. They were bringing in writers because they loved this guy's uh, artwork and they wanted to turn it into like an animated series or whatever. And so we found a writer and the artist and the writer started developing this great storyline based on his IP and like all this stuff. And it was weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months of work. And it was so exciting. And this could have been, it would have been a life game changer for the artist. Oh no, I sense a butt coming. But (laughs) when it came time to sign the contract, which of course you can imagine a contract from Warner Brothers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He got cold feet and he vanished. Wouldn't return phone calls. Wouldn't, you know, just vanished. And I just, my heart broke for him, number one because that could have paid potentially paid for his kid's education for a mortgage for you know who mm-hmm. knows how much money could have he could have made from this yeah. project with Warner Brothers and so it's it it's just was heartbreaking because i felt like you know here's an artist he's 100% artist you know just a brilliant guy but when it came time to the business stuff when it came time to sitting down with a contract and and thinking about this kind of business deal that he was entering into with this big global company, you know, Warner Brothers, 
he got cold feet and walked away. And, and, you know, that's, that's just sad. You know, I want artists to, one of my whole things is like, I want artists to lean into their power Mm -hmm. and realize that we're magicians, man. Oh, absolutely. Artists are magicians. Our power capital could, can't do shit without us. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's a symbiotic relationship between capital and creative. I mean, capital needs creative to make more money. Mm-hmm. Right. For and sure. but most creatives just I feel like don't lean into their power and don't understand how much negotiating leverage they actually have. Right. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm always quoting in 2015. You probably saw this. I'll send it to you if you didn't. But Ernst and Young partnered with the United Nations and with the Society of Composers and Authors, forgetting the name of that organization, to for once uh, for, for the first time ever quantify the creative economy globally. Mm -hmm. And so Ernst & Young, over several years, looked at 11 verticals. So they looked at visual art, performing arts, music, movies, TV, architecture, gaming, radio, you know, like 11 creative verticals, what they called the cultural Mm -hmm. industries. And they valued it at $2 trillion. Okay. So wow. in 2015, right? So the so in 2015, the creative economy was valued by Ernst and Young at two trillion across these eleven sectors, right? Now, mm-hmm. what struck me about that immediately, a couple things. One is, I think if artists knew that or really understood what that meant, mm-hmm. they would feel more empowered, right? They would feel more like they have more leverage to negotiate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that being said, the other thing that that struck me about that study was, I felt like you know what, two trillion sounds big and is big and sounds impressive, but it's underperforming. Mm-hmm. Because if artists mm-hmm. and creatives had that business savvy, that business acumen, if they knew their numbers, if they if they knew how to negotiate, if they knew arguably that two trillion would be three trillion or four trillion because it feels like, you know, we underperform. Yeah. I totally agree with that. It was just like a year ago, Etsy got listed on the S and P stock index. Right. I mean <laughs> that's massive yeah that's it's huge. amazing it's amazing yeah that's so cool that's so cool yeah so i'm gonna bounce around a little bit because i mean we're really here sure. to talk about sunlight and talk about all the great work you do for artists and i want to i want to talk about the money boot camp and i and by the way this is your time i want you to talk about anything you want to talk about what's on your mind and heart to promote because by the way it's tax season <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like, let's oh, not. Yeah. Oh, is yeah, it? <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, maybe, maybe we should stay on this for a minute. But I, I want to talk about your art as well and your practice because that's sure. the beauty, I think, of your story is that you, you're not just a financial professional or a tax professional. You're a professional artist as well. And so you know this world and you have that legitimacy and credibility and authenticity that I think a lot of artists want to need in their business consultants, right? Because they Mm -hmm. want to feel seen and heard and understood because we are like unique idiosyncratic kind of creatures (laughs) and our businesses are weird, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that's critical. Honestly, half of the work I do, maybe more than half, I feel like is just holding space for artists, honestly. And I mean, it's funny there's so much emotional labor to the work that I do, which is funny because I think most accountants in the world don't don't go into accounting because that's what they want to be doing, emotional labor. Right. And so they put a pretty strong wall up because it does happen. When you tell somebody they owe $50,000 in taxes, they didn't know what's coming. 
that's a hard job. Yeah. It's really hard to be that messenger. And there's a lot of people who will turn nasty really fast. Luckily, artists are generally pretty nice. They get that that is actually their responsibility and don't shoot the messenger. But to be that messenger is brutal. <laughs> and a lot of what I'm doing is just like holding space for them and witnessing them, witnessing how hard what they do is. And actually, I really like to say in all my, I mean, primarily, I think of myself as an educator, like speaker, writer, and teacher. And in all of my talks, I always end with just kind of a just an appreciation for what artists do in the world, which is we are the empathy builders. We are the people bridging divides and showing showing the less creative part of the population what better world is possible. And I think it can be really hard when you are an artist. I want all artists to take the making money part more seriously and actually treat it like treat themselves like they deserve it and not think of all money as evil and all people with money as evil. Cause those are attitudes that just, they just shoot you in the foot. They just stop you from having any financial security pretty much. When you are an artist, the thing about it is that you, I just don't know any artists who went into art because making money was their top priority, right? Artists go into it for other reasons. They want to do other things, bigger things, and they have a vision. And to me, that's the power. That is what is so wonderful. And I think that artists can, well, for one thing, it can be very scary when you have made decisions all year long, prioritizing, just making the most kick-ass show you possibly can. I mean, what artist in the world is going to pick the cheap materials over the really, really nice materials when they're trying to make the best possible work, right? Like you can't name anyone, right? But when you then have had a lot of decision making compounded on top of each other. And then you show that you show what the finance side of that looks like on a balance sheet or on a profit and loss statement. You bring that to an accountant. The only thing that accountant is seeing is the numbers. They're not seeing, oh, but that show you had, that was amazing. That was the coolest show I ever saw. It blew my, my mind. I told all these people about it. We had this conversation and that's why we do it, right? It's not that profit and loss statement where the accountant is looking at it and they're like, is this really a business? <laughs> like, <laughs> those words yeah. that yeah. a lot of artists had heard, have heard because their numbers don't look really huge. It's so insulting. It hurts so badly. And so I think like half of my work is just witnessing artists. Like, I see it. I see that incredible show. Damn, you got that residency. It takes so much to get that grant. Like, I totally know that. And it's okay. These numbers aren't as big as they would be if you were applying these skills over in medicine or law. But I think they should be. And then that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, it's fascinating. What kind of world would it be, right, if we were teaching? from K through 12, as seriously as we teach, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic, you know, if we were truly teaching design thinking and color theory and art appreciation, what would the world look like if, if folks had, mm. had developed those muscles as well? You know? Absolutely. I had a teacher in graduate school who said, John Walker, to give him credit, mm. he said, you know, most kids, they draw, they draw it show the world what they're going through to tell a story, just to express themselves in any way. That's like, that's the natural language that everyone learns first. And then most kids, once they learn to write and schools encourage this, they move over and they 
lose the drawing and they transition over to writing and it supplants the the drawing. And so we start out as visual thinkers and visual communicators. And then we, you know, our school system prioritizes this other school. I'm not trying to say writing's not important. It's great. But it's like we abandon the skill that we all started out with. Yes. This is one of the, re- and then the, the hilarious thing, like to loop back to what we were talking about in the beginning, if more of us felt more comfortable as visual thinkers and visual communicators, everyone would have a favorite painting. Everyone would have a favorite exhibition. Everyone would like have an artist that's their favorite artist. We'd all just feel more comfortable in that space and more conversant in it. So, so are you familiar with the book Orbiting the Giant Hairball? No, I'm not. Okay, okay. So it's been out a while, but it's written by a guy. He's not with us anymore, but his name's Gordon McKenzie. And Gordon was the chief creative officer for Hallmark Cards. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so he wrote Orbiting the Giant Hairball. It's, it's largely about how do you maintain your artistic integrity when you work inside a corporate organization, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like he did. And so there's this poignant story he tells in the book because one of the things he did to get back is that he would go and he would speak to school kids about mm-hmm. art and creativity. And so he, uh, as, as the story is told in the book, he would always, always began his talks with the same question. And that mm-hmm. question was, who here is an artist? Mm. And in kindergarten, every kid raised their hand. Mm-hmm. Right. And in first grade, two thirds of the class. Mm-hmm. By the time he asked that question to a third grade class, he said there was like one kid in the back, you know, maybe <laughs> raised hand. I'm, I'm an artist, you know. And it's like, wow, within the first two, three, four years of a kid's primary education, we just sort of beat it out of them somehow, you know, squeeze mm-hmm. it out of them. And yet mm-hmm. it's there. We're all being, you know, when we were all kids, we all believe we were artists. Totally. I don't know where to go from there, but I think it's <laughs> no, true. I, know. I think I know. we all start that way. We, yeah. I mean, this is something that also just like to get back to that idea of democracy and anti-snobbery in this world, in the art world. I think that to the art is human. It's actually in the most beautiful way. It is what it is to be human Mm. and that you can bring all your intelligence and all your education and all your experience to art. Like you can have a different read on the same piece of artwork because you have now gone through different things. You know, maybe after a divorce, you see it in a different way or after you have children, you see it in a different way or after your whatever, you know, life experience can change the way you experience art, but you fundamentally cannot have a more human reaction to it than anyone else. Every single person is equal when it comes to their experience of art. Now, people don't realize that maybe they think there's some gatekeeper who's supposed to tell them, but you have a response. You have an emotional response to it. Sometimes that response is, I don't get it. And that's fine. That's a legitimate response. But also sometimes it's like, there's something about this that disgusts me and I can't explain it. Like that's a, that's also a legit reaction, you know? And then sometimes it's like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. This speaks to my soul. Yeah. It is a fascinating thing. Like why we've gotten to a point where we don't trust our own emotional reaction yeah, it's kind of sad when you think about it. <laughs> like, uh, how do we? How do we get? How do we get sad? I'm sad now. Uh, 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 Hannah, give me some sunlight, Hannah. 
All right. All right. I'll tell you, I'll tell you some happy things. So yeah, let's go happy. One of the things that makes me happiest in the world is actually the potential that artists have in an entrepreneurial space. Mm. So this I say as both an artist and an entrepreneur, which I like literally my 20 year old self is like, you are what? (laughs) (laughs) By the way, I want to go back. I wish I had a time machine. I want to go back and meet the 20 year old Hannah Cole. I mean, I I just have this vision now of this punk rock badass who's not going to take shit and, you know, but she's fun as hell. (laughs) And, and, you know, I, I, I wish I had a time machine. I appreciate that. It's really funny when you like have kids who are like getting old enough to have their own opinions on pop culture and stuff. It's like, oh, right. Like I now have people who live with me to get to tell me that I'm not cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, There's nothing less cool than saying, you know what? I used to be cool. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's official. I am not cool. Oh my God. It's so true. Yes. Yeah. But... (laughs) But just the happy thought to be an entrepreneur, I think, you know, I was telling you that I used to think that business was for kind of very square, very straight, very jockish dudes. And it's beautiful to me that it's not that at all. I actually feel like there has been a total renaissance in small scale entrepreneurship and that you see all these beautiful companies getting started by people from all kinds of different experiences, highlighting their difference, accentuating and celebrating their difference and showing, oh, you know what? My experience in the world is a person with mental health issues. And so we're going to like, I'm going to build my whole business around the fact that I have mental health challenges and we're going to attract customers who also have that. And like, that's wild to me. And it's delightful. You can have your own freaky flavor of business. So to me, just this explosion of flavors is amazing. And there's a couple of things that I think artists have an inherent advantage in when it comes to entrepreneurship. Now, lacking business skills, that is a problem. That is a thing. But the good news is that stuff is learnable. I am literally here to tell you, I come from that. I don't want to touch that. I'm never going to learn any of that. And here I am. I have five employees and I like run a pretty, a decent sized business now. And I I run payroll. (laughs) You can learn too. Yes. But I think, I think the strongest thing is that artists, artists see things other people don't see and they, they see holes and they see, and they create bridges. And so a lot of times art is functioning as highlighting those things. It's just an awareness thing. Although sometimes it goes further, right? And entrepreneurs are looking for holes. They're looking for places to solve a problem. And so I feel like artists are inherently perceptive about those things and can use those skills to translate. And artists are also like a lot of them, not spoiled on great treatment. They didn't graduate from Harvard Business School and they don't need to be treated to a six-figure salary right out of the gate. They are okay with like having a pretty modest startup phase. So that's a strength. Honestly, that's how my business got off the ground. I made $5,000 my first year in Sunlight Tax. Our artists <laughs> are the ultimate bootstrappers, man. I yeah. mean, artists can absolutely take one thing and another thing and make it equal three things. I mean, the, this- Totally. Right. We're alchemists. Yes. You're alchemists. Yes. Literally, you can. I love to think of Al Anatsui. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but this incredible artist who makes these gorgeous, like fish scaly kind of things out of 
out of trash. They look, mm. they look like chain mail. Mm-hmm. He's one of thousands of artists who basically make priceless objects out of garbage. But that's what we do. I mean, that is alchemy. That is actual alchemy. Yes. Yeah, no, it's you're hitting on such an important point because, and again, that sort of gets back to this idea of like artists sort of waking up to their power uh, into mm-hmm. their true value. You know, I, I, well, there's several aspects of this. I remember years ago talking to, I was at a, I was living in Chicago at the time and I lived above an Irish pub and uh, it was very convenient. <laughs> and I was there one day and the woman sitting next to me was my neighbor. Her name was June. And June owned, she was an artist, and she owned kind of a boutique, a hip boutique right across the corner. And in the boutique, she sold, you know, exclusive sort of fashion, avant-garde kind of stuff. And then she had arts. And But the area that we lived in was not at all trending. It was the arts district at one point, is the arts district, uh, or was at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I remember June telling me, because we were, we were starting to see gentrification happen you know, mm-hmm. in, in the neighborhood. And June said, and I was probably, I don't know, 23 or something. June was probably 20 years my senior, so she was probably in her 40s at that time. She said, well, you know how gentrification happens. And I was like, well, maybe not. You tell me. And she says, well, you know, us artists, we come into a shitty neighborhood like this and we start to make it cool. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. you know, five years down the road, there's the, the cool gallery, the cool coffee shop, the, the cool underground bar, the re- cool resale shop. And then suddenly people want to live there. People want to come there. And then the money comes and then eventually the rents go up and then the artists have to move because, you know, they can't afford to live there anymore. Mm-hmm. And you see this. This is the power of what art, artists do, right? They literally <laughs> come into a desolate area and bring life to it. That's what artists do. Yeah, I think it's I think it's amazing. It is totally amazing. I think it's also important that like I have some funny stories about being in school as an accountant. Okay. Cuz I mean just talk about being a black sheep. Right. Oh my god, yeah, you infiltrated this world, right? You're the you're the artist coming into this world of suits, you know. <laughs> it, it was so weird. I had so many revelations. I literally, this this was very satisfying. I had this professor who like years later wrote me an email and he was like, I just looked at your website. I didn't realize that you were like a real artist. And then he saw that I had started this company and he also couldn't believe that. And he, and he sent me a business pitch. He asked if I wanted to become his business partner. That's <laughs> awesome. Like, what? Bravo, bravo. Oh, man, it was crazy. But I have so many funny stories that illustrate, honestly, they illustrate how hardworking artists are, I mm. think, and how hard it is to be an artist and actually how easy the rest of the world is sometimes. So I, as an artist, like I have had this, my strategy has been, first of all, you have to be excellent to be an artist. If you're not going to stick with it to the point where you develop like real skills, where your work is really good. Like, what are you doing it for? So to me, and I find that is true of all my peers, our work is great. The people who I exchange studio visits with, I'm never wasting my time. They're they're incredible. I don't know. And also, it's so hard to negotiate in the art world. There's not a ton of money, not a ton of opportunity. I mean, maybe it's that's a little overstated, but, you know, but it's hard, right? You get, you hear a lot of no's. I remember 
in accounting school, like they brought in, you know, as a sort of career opportunity kind of thing, they brought in this guy who was a partner at Ernst and Young, and they brought him in to like have a chit chat with the accounting students. And I was like, oh hell yeah! Like I'm about to try and start an accounting company. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna wear something. And I did, I did all my artist tricks, right? Like I was like, I'm gonna wear something very noticeable, memorable. So I'm gonna dress in a certain way. I'm going to sit in the front. I'm going to have read his bio backwards and forwards before I show up to this event. So I'm going to ask him some intelligent questions and reveal that I actually know who he is, like really know who he is, do my homework. And I went in there to this sleepy little lecture hall where all these accounting students had been forced to go by their professors. And I sat in the front and I did that. And I asked three questions. Well, no one else there asked a single question. And this guy, and I thought like, I'm going to make a really positive impression. So I might have a chance of getting his card so I can follow up. So I could maybe get a coffee with him and maybe get an introduction somewhere or, you know, like get some tips on starting my own firm. Right. It was so much easier than that. Instantly. He was like, wow, because no one else in there asked a single question. It was insane. And the, but this so gets to one of the core attributes of virtually any artist worth their salt. And that mm-hmm. is that artists give a shit and, you know, and you yeah. gave a shit. Like you really, you put everything into it. You're like, I'm going to show up. I'm going to be my best. I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to deliver. I'm going to bring the goods. Mm-hmm. And everyone else is just like, eh, you know, I'm yeah. here because I have to be. You know? Totally. Right. Also for the record, We went out and we had lunch. We like became friends. We like went to museums together, developed like a real relationship. Me and this, you know, seven year old retired accountant. We chit chat. We like talk about his kids who are my age. And, you know, I mean, it's like it was so easy. He was so impressed because one of the things I realized is in the accounting world, there is so much room for mediocrity. There's so much room to be a terrible accountant in this world. You can get a job. You just can. And that's not true as an artist. So it's also like, to me, the standards in the art world are so high because there isn't room for terrible artists. They're just, I mean, sure, as a hobby, yes. But to get a show at a gallery, to do real stuff, no, absolutely not. You do know what the acronym MBA stands for, right? Uh, and this is no, a joke, by the way. If you didn't already smell it coming. <laughs> yeah. So the acronym MBA stands for mediocre, but arrogant. and i say and by the way so many of my friends have mbas and i'm telling you like i say that i tell them that joke all the time and this kind of gets back to that i hope you don't have your mba (laughs) do you have your mba i don't okay honestly i feel like the one i've gotten on my own has been more valuable yes 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 courses i'd love to take honestly no no well it's funny no i actually i i at one point i thought i'd go get my MBA. I moved to LA from Chicago. And it was ironic because of course, Chicago has so many great business schools. And Mm. I thought, well, okay, I'm here, you know, let me check out Anderson at UCLA. And at that time, I guess I was 35. And, or maybe I was a little bit older, 37, 30, whatever, but I get there and I'm auditing some classes. And I was like, oh, hell no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because for starters, I felt like Everybody was a kid, you know, like really not just like in age, but just immature. Like I was just like, you could be my age, but I just felt like everybody was immature. 
But more than that, I felt like, oh, wait a minute. I can't. I'm a gamer. Like I like mm-hmm. to be, you know, I like to roll up my sleeves and go and jump and do it and figure it out and build a plane while I'm trying to fly it and, you know, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And the idea that I was going to be a, uh, in school for two years paying, you know, $100,000 plus for an mm-hmm. MBA, I just, I knew I would feel like a caged animal, yeah. you know? And I was like, totally. oh no, the, this animal's got to, got to run, man. And so anyway, so it just wasn't for me. And it was, it was funny. I was the, the, uh, recruiter who was interviewing me and like talked to me. And I said, well, tell me what's the ROI on a, on an MBA from UCLA. And she just looked at me like I had three heads, you know, <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm. she couldn't, she didn't even have an answer ready for me. You know, I was like, okay, this is just proof that I don't need to go here. Yeah. <laughs> but, That's fascinating. You know, yeah. It's super fascinating. It's like, wow. Okay. I guess you just want my money. Oy, yeah. So what do you think, Going back to what you were saying about artists being entrepreneurs or having the power to innovate, right? And to imagine, see the white space and and innovate and create solutions. And you're so right. And this goes back to our comment earlier about, you know, artists being magicians and sort of, poof, you know, creating things out of midair, which is a powerful gift, a powerful talent. Uh, not very many people have it. You know, my whole thing over the years has been about, you know, when I talk to artists, I, you know, I try to challenge them to think about what they do as intellectual property, because if you're very object, you know, if it's like, it's like, oh, no, I'm a painter, I make paintings. Well, yeah, that's true. But aren't you really creating proprietary intellectual property that you could monetize the rights to so that you make money when you sleep? (laughs) I'll tell you, as an entrepreneur, I definitely I'm into that idea very right. much. I've I've never really applied it in the painting space, but you're so completely right. And, yeah. and 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 this gets to my frustration with how art schools and design schools have gone about teaching. And I think mm-hmm. we know too much now. They have to adjust, or artists need to educate themselves because it's like just because you finish that canvas, you're not done yet. Because mm-hmm. if you do believe you're in the intellectual property business then that would require a couple more steps. One is it would absolutely require that you register your painting with the copyright office, number one. And number two, make sure you get a high-res digital image of that Mm -hmm. canvas, right? Mm -hmm. Because then if you, you know, obviously if if there's somebody ever steals your work, work, you have protected it so you can sue and and, and get damages and not just mm-hmm. you know the, the actual loss i forget what exactly what the legal terms are but having that copyright allows you to sue and make that extra 50,000 or 100,000 or whatever but if you don't have that copyright you can't sue for damages and then having that high res digital image allows you then to potentially license that image into fabrics or manufacturing or, you know, some sort of a product line, you know, for Macy's or whatever the case might be. The beauty of embracing this idea that we're in the intellectual property business and we want to go that next step to license the rights to use our IP, then suddenly we're making money when we sleep. <laughs> and how brilliant is that? It is brilliant. It really is. Well, I find that a lot of artists are really conservative. They're geniuses and incredibly creative when it comes to actual artwork. Mm. But when you get a couple layers to the outside of their practice into the business model of their art practice, 
super conservative, like, well, mm. we do it this way. We, you know, you try and get yes. gallery representation and then, you know, you have shows and residencies and maybe you get some work placed in a museum. The funny thing, and I can say this with some authority doing the taxes for many artists and mm-hmm. seeing what the numbers look like. People don't make money that way. They, no. they just do not like no. artists. If you are listening to this right now and you think that the holy grail for you is get is gallery representation and it will solve your financial problems, you are wrong. <laughs> it might Sorely solve some mistaken. prestige problems for you. <laughs> <laughs> the art world is happy to pay you in prestige and stiff you on money. Yes. It's a thing that I see a lot of. Oh, no, you're you're definitely, I mean, you and I, like, I want you to be a regular guest on the podcast. Will you be a regular guest on the podcast? Because sure. I just feel like you, you and I could just go for hours because you just hit on something that's like such a like pain point for me too. It's like, look, guys, the existing gallery system is but one business model. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. trust me, that one business model fails 99.9% of artists. And yeah. yet you're trying to get in there. Yeah. What the art world needs is more business models, more innovation. And artists, so you are the perfect people to solve this problem. You are the perfect people to solve this problem. You were talking about, I mean, first of all, just look at the gallery model. Listen, I'm represented by two galleries and I love them and they serve a role in my life. Yes. And I accept yes. what that role is. Yes. But if you just even look at a gallery model, you can tell it's not going to serve your financial needs. That gallery represents 20 artists. And the income generated by that gallerist from selling the work of 20 artists is enough to support them, right? You are only one of the 20. You are making the same 50% that the dealer is. If you have a 20th of the income, do you think you're going to have the quality of life that that gallerist does? No. (laughs) Like, it doesn't work. It just, on its face, you don't even have to look at the numbers. You can just look at how that structure is. And you can be like, that's not going to work very well for me. Of course, we're acting like all 20 artists sell equally and they don't usually there's like one, two or three of them who are like the hot sellers. And of course, who gets the attention of the gallerist is going to be those three. And the rest of the people are like scrambling for a little bit of attention here and there. So there's that. But I'm here to say because I do the taxes of a lot of artists, I do see real bright lights and people making incredible sales And I do see people, what excites me the most is when people are really innovating on the business side of their art practice. I think it takes a thick skin because I think actually the art world is very conservative about that stuff. We are actually very conformist, which is shocking, right? But I think artists are very conformist, or some of them are, a lot, I guess, artists in my crowd give us an example you you know you're talking about some some because you you do work with so many artists and so many arts businesses and you just sort of mentioned some of the cool things you see some artists doing for their business you know innovative Mm -hmm. kind of things give us an example of share one or two ideas that you've seen that really are working hard for artists. sure well i think one of the greatest sort of secret superpowers of artists is community building and resource sharing And so a lot of artists I see doing really well are basically giving back to their arts community. I suppose you could say that's what I'm doing. But a lot of artists I've seen have created really wonderful businesses that add tremendous value to their their peers as artists. So there's some people I feel like I should, if I'm doing their taxes, I feel like I should not name their names. But there are people who, for example, just create lists of opportunities and they sort of have like a subscription model and they show a whole bunch of opportunities. I have a client who 
does this for women specifically, opportunities for female artists. She does great. It's really cool. And then all these people pull together and they pool resources. And so it's, it's sort of community building and it lifts all the boats. I mean, it's fantastic. Well, I can name a couple who I, I know would actually be happy with me to name them. I have a friend, Erica Hess, who is herself a painter, a great painter. And she has a podcast, the I Like Your Work podcast. Oh, yeah. That's a great podcast. It's a fabulous podcast. Yeah. She's a great, she's, a, Erica. T- tell is, her I wanted to, co- tell her I wanted to come on the show. I'd love to chat with her. That'd be I great. I would be so happy to. I will be so happy to. But she is a natural leader, a natural community builder, mm. Erica. And mm. everything she does just sort of orients that way. I think it's kind of her vibe. And so her podcast really builds a community. And she has started, I even have one I can, I know this is a podcast, but she started printing these catalogs and she started a little membership where she, you get a catalog every month and some other benefits. And so it's just like, you know, these kind of things that artists really like and really need. Yes. Yeah. I have another friend, Patty Johnson, who she was like one of the OGs of the art world. She had the first art blog, I think. Art, Art F City. She now runs this membership called Network, where she she's like a writer and an editor and a grant maker, I guess you would say. And she teaches artists kind of like how to get grants, how to write an art, artist statement, how to approach galleries, how to do a good studio visit. And so, you know, like she's running, it, it is like a membership model. But so I've seen a lot of success definitely in that like membership or subscription model among artists. I think that's, that's so cool. hopeful. I mean, it's, it, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that because, you know, I do feel like it's so important for artists to hear these examples and know about these so-called case studies because then they can apply that to their own business. And one of the mm-hmm. downsides of being an artist is that it's often a lonely profession, right? I mean, we're all oh, sort yeah. of squirreling away in our uh, studios and we think that we're alone in our world and, and that problem that we have is unique to us. And it turns out that same problem, a hundred other artists are probably grappling with. And if mm-hmm. we could come together and and share a little bit more, listen to a podcast and hear some great ideas, hopefully that will that will go to spread the love and help uh, address and people, you know, people realize, oh, wait, my problems aren't so unique. You know, everybody's kind of struggling with similar things. But well, you know, Hannah, I what I love about talking to you is that it, we have already been talking for an hour and 10 minutes and it feels like five minutes. I mean, it's just like this. It's like amazing. I'm so grateful to have you on and I want to be respectful of your time and we could keep going. I could keep going. But in in terms of respecting your times, I know you've got a lot going on too. You know, before we do wrap up today, whenever that is, it's tax season, right? Mm-hmm. And artists are, you know, either they're sticking their head in the sand right now <laughs> <laughs> like so many of us are just like, I don't want to deal with it. Or they're, you know, or they are actually taking it on and grappling with it. So, and you know, one of the great resources, and I encourage everybody listening to go to your website, it's sunlight, sunlighttax.com, sunlighttax.com, right. So you have so many great resources. Like, for example, I just uh, earlier, I downloaded your free resource for deductions. Yeah. I mean, what a cool, what a cool freaking chart. I mean, it looks amazing. I mean, it's a, like, it looks like art itself. The design of it's so cool, but then it, the value, the, the, the information here is, is so valuable. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was, that was my vision to just like a one page printable, beautiful item that just teaches you all the rules. If you're listening, you want to go to the website and download that free guide. You can just literally print it. 
stick it above your desk as you do your taxes. <laughs> it's so. so good. It's so good because it's starting. One, one of the things I love about your name, Sunlight Tax, is that sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you, you, you shine light on something, you get to see, and it, things become clear. And a free resource like this is powerful because you make a very complex thing, seemingly scary, complex thing, quite simple and easy to understand. You know, it's interesting, though. I don't see on the list of deductions, I don't see whiskey. <laughs> I cannot deduct my whiskey. Is that is that what you're telling me here? Well, you, you can deduct your whiskey if you have it with another person who you oh, are doing I hate drinking with. alone. Okay. Yeah, All right. So don't drink alone is basically the upshot <laughs> here. Take someone out. Talk about your next project or do business in that way. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So, so talk a little bit more about the other resources on your website because you've got the money boot camp. You've got so many other good things. Tell our listeners about what they'll find when they go to Sunlight Tax. Sure. So, well, that deductions guide is great and immediate. You can use it right away. And I am often offering a free um, masterclass. So you can just come and sign up for that. And watch a class and learn a couple things about your taxes. And I also have a kind of my flagship program, which is called Money Bootcamp. I feel so proud of it. It is a program that basically teaches you how to how to handle your taxes as an artist. So it gets you to set up your own bookkeeping. It gets you to know what your profit is, to calculate your estimated quarterly taxes and pay them every quarter. And it even teaches you how to use tax advantaged accounts and set up retirement for yourself. And I'm telling you, I show you the math in the program that it just, it actually only takes a low number of thousands of dollars per year to become a millionaire so long as you start soon enough. So it's a lot of artists I find just discount altogether the fact that they might be able to retire one day. But I'm here to tell you, if you start on the sooner rather than the later side, you absolutely can. And it does not actually take as much as you thought. So I teach you that. And I actually even teach investment strategy inside of Money Bootcamp. So just not anything fancy, not anything overwhelming, but the whole goal is towards like, here is the simplest path to get started. That's the biggest barrier, the intimidation factor. So everything's about clarity, giving you only what you need and not what you don't. So that's Money Bootcamp. And I'm it's basically everything I learned that is incredible and valuable and artists need distilled into a you know self-study course with lots of resources right on making it easy to do the right thing well yeah and making it easy because it's it's selfish i i want you to make more art yes right (laughs) and when artists quit it's because of money and i don't Mm. ever want to see that happen again in my life i don't want anybody to lose a job the way i did because somebody didn't know their profit i don't want artists to have to make decisions life decisions that they don't like or want to make because of economics. So I want you to have these skills so that you keep making art and you show up well rested and full strength every time because you're changing the world, right? Artists are changing the world with their work. So it's it's important. It's so true. They beautify the world and that is truly priceless and yet somehow taxable. (laughs) <laughs> so, so, so thank god we have you hannah cole oh. you are such a you you truly are the, the name of your company is spot on because you are uh, full of sunlight and it's so great to have you on the show and so much great knowledge and wisdom and, and empathy you're leading with that sense of emotional intelligence that makes uh, this tough stuff so much easier 
we so appreciate all the work you're doing. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I would love to come back anytime if you want to ask your people what their tax questions are. And we do we do that a more tax forward one next time. I'm so happy for that. So thanks. Thanks for hosting me. Yeah, yeah. So so I'm I want to take this opportunity to to put you on the spot on a couple of things. One is Sure. Yes or no, will you come back again? Yes, totally. Happily. Right on. And so that's woohoo, that's a big win. <laughs> And then I'm going to put you on the spot again because you may or may not know this. You probably don't, and that's fine. But we produce an artist conference, and we launched it in 2019. Of course, we had to cancel it in 2020, Mm. and we decided not to do it in 2021 because it's such a weird year. Yeah. Long story short, we're bringing it back in 2023, and would love to invite you to come and give a keynote and be a part of the speakers and the experts that are coming to help artists here in Los Angeles. So we'd love to have you come out. Oh, so fun. I would love it. I would love it. Please do it at a time of year that is gross over here so that I can escape to LA. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Well, so I'm guessing what that would be January, February, March. Is this this what you're angling for? Okay. Okay. No, I'll come anytime. I'll come anytime. But that sounds fantastic. I would love to. Well, and the other thing too, Hannah, you know, I mean, you've got so much energy. I'm surprised because it is tax season. I mean, are you getting any sleep? I mean, because most of the accountants I know during tax season, uh, you know, are not sleep are not sleeping much. Well, I will tell you this: the last two tax seasons during COVID wrecked mm. me, and and mm. it's important to note that I'm also a mother and of two mm. pretty young children. And mm. anybody who was homeschooling non-readers during this period feels some massive burnout. And any accountant who's been through the last two tax season also feels burnout. So my burnout got so bad that I was, I hired a lot. And I was like, mm. you know what? I'm just not going to have another season that bad. So that's why you're looking at me and I'm like able to laugh because I handled it. Good, good. <laughs> Well, you delegated, right? And Mm -hmm. I mean, good for you because, you know, one of the things that's hard for, I think, a lot of folks is is letting go and delegating. Oh, man. We have such a DIY culture as artists and it's powerful. Like there's a lot that's wonderful about that. And I don't want us to lose it in some ways, but there are times that it is just not smart to DIY things. It is so much faster, better, more secure to outsource things. Whether that is your bookkeeping or whether it is your laundry <laughs> or like, <laughs> there's lots of things to outsource. Becoming an entrepreneur used to, I wish people talked to artists about this more. Maybe we should have a whole podcast episode on things, things I learned as a business owner that would be really well applied to my actual art practice. But one of them is what are the things only I can do and that I that are the most valuable coming from me? And you keep those sacred, you treat that time like it's your meeting with the president and the stuff that is putting that 20th coat of gesso on the painting, you could maybe hire an art student to help you with that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yes, indeed. Being, yeah, that's, that's a key bit of info. That is a key bit of info. It's like being really clear about what is the th- one unique thing that only I can do? Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. I'm thinking about that through my own lens. And I was actually telling our friend Morgan this the other day. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sort of getting to the point now with the podcast that I don't need to be the host. Mm-hmm. You know, I love it. It's great fun. 
but I actually envision having co-hosts or other people that can take the mic for a month, mm-hmm. you know, and interview folks. And it's funny because I'm starting, you know, it took me a while to kind of get there. And part of it is desperation. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're just sort of like, you hit that wall and you're just like, wait a minute, I, this isn't sustainable and I want to let go and I want to delegate. And by the way, you just want to give people a chance or give people an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I'm at that point now where I now have one co-host, one woman who uh, helps host the show Aaron Yoshi. She also happens to be the only artist I know with an MBA. Hmm. And yeah, so she's like you. She's got the left brain, right brain thing happening and just mm-hmm. brilliant. And so, and she's great on the mic. And, she, you know, and so that's good. I think you'd be a good podcast host. You have, you're very good on the mic. Thanks. I've had people ask me to start a podcast. I'll tell you this the tech and the editing is very intimidating to me. That would be a thing I would outsource immediately because <laughs> I know, I know I don't want to do it. I'll tell you what, you you think about this. If you mm-hmm. are ever interested in hosting a podcast, I will hand over the mic to you any day. Really? Oh my gosh. I'm yes. Totally dying to. I like I literally on my notes app, I've got 10 podcast ideas like right here. Just like these are these are things that would make a great podcast. <laughs> Don't reinvent the wheel. We've got the wheel. Just come and spin it with us. Awesome. Um, that would be All amazing. Right. That would be amazing. Let's talk more about that because, you know, I why Why go through all that stuff? You could literally just invite your friends and, and uh, or your colleagues or whatever. Have some fun with us. You got it. That's a deal. <laughs> all right. More to come. All right. More to come. We digress. We digress. Oh, my gosh. Awesome. Hannah Cole, you are fantastic. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. It's really great to talk to you. Like I said, I just love your ethic and the stuff that you're doing. So... Yeah, I feel the vibe. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah. yeah, right on. Well, it's it's and that means a lot. I mean, it's so funny because the name, it's been so interesting, like with the name Not Real Art, to watch people's expressions because 99% of the time, artists get the joke immediately, mm-hmm. right? They never, they never question the name, rarely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anytime, there have been more times than not, I've spoken to gallerists, curators, so-called experts and they say they say uh, not real art i don't what does that even mean i don't understand that like, what do you mean i only work with real artists you know it's like <laughs> yeah if you have to ask you wouldn't understand i love it i love it That's awesome. <laughs> excellent excellent well hannah cole you have a wonderful day and come back and see us awesome thanks for hosting me scott it's been awesome Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.